Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest today is music and film producer and co-founder of the legendary Rhino Records, Harold Bronson. And now, your Sexy Boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. And I'm Phil Proctor. And today we're honored to have a guest with us, Harold Bronson, who I have known for a long, wonderful time, creatively and personally. And uh, he really brought the Firestone Theater into Rhino Records, produced quite a few of our albums, and then has gone on to have an extended career beyond that that's been quite amazing, and I'm looking forward to catching up with you. Yes, it'll be fun. We want to talk to you about your remarkable career in music and film and your fascinating book about your travels in the 1970s to Europe to uh, track down and meet the artists and bands that changed music in the 1960s and 70s. The title of your book is My British Invasion, The Inside Story on the Yardbirds, The Dave Clark Five, Manford Mann, Herman's Hermits, The Hollies, The Trogs, The Kinks, The Zombies, and more. So you just read the book. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you wrote this uh, in 2017? Um, it was published in uh, 2017, yeah. Now, was it something that you were writing ongoing? Because it's filled with wonderful personal reminiscences of your contact with these, all these groups. Well, I'll tell you. Okay. Um, first of all, my background, when I first met you guys, I was in my uh, 20s. Um, I wrote about music for Rolling Stone and uh, the Rock magazines and the L.A. Times and like anybody who would you know pay me. And um, so it was a real reflection of the passion and interest I felt, which, you know, kind of rolled in unexpectedly to uh, Rhino and creating the uh, Rhino label. So so writing was always part of my background. And when I left Rhino, um, I thought, uh, if I don't preserve the history of the company, it's going to be lost. Right. So... Uh, the first book, which it took me a little while to get around to because of certain projects that I was still working on, um, the Rhino Records story was published in 2013. Uh-huh. So I, I felt that was the most important book. So um, there were a couple chapters because of length that I left out, mm-hmm. and um, which was dealing with and trying to reissue a part of the King's catalog and Dave Clark dealing with him in the Dave Clark Five catalog. And um, then it occurred to me the British invade, the artists of the British invasion were always a, uh, a big inspiration to me and I was a real fan of the music. And so I just was kind of thinking that there was a lot of those artists that really, their histories weren't really covered that right. well or accurately. So there's a lot of books on the Beatles and Rolling Stones and the Who, but um, how about the Spencer Davis group and the Yardbirds and Herman's Hermits and the Hollies and a lot of those others? And um, because of my passion, I'd interviewed a lot of those artists in the 1970s and felt that I got their stories, or at least enough to kind of be able to give people a good overview on it. There's three chapters of going to London, you know, as a rock and roll fan. So the first one was in September 1972, when not when very few Americans, or at least you know people my age, went over to London because of you know the, it wasn't that <laughs> expensive, but right. you know it was a certain amount of expense, and so you know they didn't really see that many Americans like me. One thing that kind of really struck me, being that I was very shy, not that I wouldn't talk to anybody. But when I was in kind of the rock and roll circles of maybe an event with other writers or record companies, but I was really struck by there wasn't any curiosity. Like nobody ever really asked me questions of, oh, well, you know, what's the rock and roll scene like in in Los Angeles or anything like that, um, which obviously worked against my shyness. But so the thing (laughs) is, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to London. Who could I interview? You know, who never comes to Los Angeles. Right. And there were, you know, a handful of people. But probably the best example was the Trogs, who uh, you had a big hit with Wild Thing. Of course, Jimi Hendrix also did Wild Thing. And their other big U.S. hit was 
Love is All Around. Yeah. They did have a good run in England. I mean, they had lots of hits, maybe 10 top 10 hits or something like that. So I kind of tracked them down, and I was sitting in a room. I interviewed them, and, and it was like, um, it was a real, aside from the fact that they were good guys and funny, and I got their story, and I mean, they would talk about when they, I think they only went, did one kind of small tour in the U.S., but they talked about when they went to New York, like the big sandwiches you know, <laughs> that they would get, you know, things like that, you know, just aside from, you know, the story of uh, the rock and roll stuff. One of the things that I really, really, really enjoyed in your book, My British Invasion by Harold Bronson, was when you talked about the, uh, the influence of the British bands on the look of our rock and rollers. The fact that they had British teeth, which were, which yeah. were never, you know, perfect. Yeah. And that they, they wore shaggy clothes, you know, and that they weren't, they weren't, they, they weren't manufactured. They were real people. Yeah. Long hair, you know, uh, just the music was the most important thing. Well, you know, it's, it was really a phenomenal period to grow up in, for, you know, as a teenager. And, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, as we all know, when you experience something, there's a lot of nuances that you are aware of and you retain. Um, somebody who's, in this case, maybe a lot younger who didn't grow up with the period, they can read about it, they could be really, you know, fascinated with it. Let me give you a good example of uh, the Turtles. I, in um, the Rhino Records story, I have a whole chapter on the Turtles, which is really fascinating. But more specifically, um, they came from Westchester, which is where I grew up. Um, they were older than me. I knew a couple of their younger brothers. But the uh, Turtles were, um, they were known as the best band in the area, but as the Crossfires. And when these managers ah. became interested and wanted to sign them, they, they said, you know, you have to change your name. And they suggested the Turtles, um, in part because it was kind of like the birds. Yeah. But they said, um, Turtles, people will think you're English because of Beatles, T-L-E-S, Turtles, T-L-E-S. And in some of the early Turtles gigs outside of Los Angeles, it would say like, you know, you know, direct from Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I mean, you know, there were American acts that, you know, that that. How about, you know, the Sir Douglas Quintet, <laughs> you know, Doug Sam from, you know, Texas. But, you know, Sir Douglas or the first American rock and roll band that fashioned themselves after the Beatles and had hits were uh, not the Birds, but the Bo Brummels. Laugh, Laugh um, was the first hit. And um, so Bo Brummel, yeah. you know, was this the English fashion, you know, from antiquity. And the Bo Brummels, they, you know, they grew their hair long like the Beatles. They wore suits like the Beatles. And their managers, again, you know, tried to pass them off, at least initially, as um, English. An English group. The, so. the, the Bo Brummels, I know the Brummel part went on to create uh, a butter substitute called Brummel and Brown which I have down in the refrigerator right now. You don't know about that, do you? You've got a carcass in your refrigerator? No, not a carcass. I've got some, oh, some oh. butter substitute. Oh. <laughs> but uh, the turtles really stuck their neck out, uh, and it was successful. They got sighted. Now, who are the two guys in the turtles? Howard Kalin. Howard. And Mark Volman. I knew them both. Yeah. I think I met them through you, actually. Maybe. Years ago. But, yeah, maybe. Very nice guy. But they also were on Columbia in the mid-'70s. Well, that's were. right. Firesign Theater was on Columbia Records. So Okay, so here's what happened is their record company, White Whale Records, was falling apart, and they were, you know, the Turtles were owed money. White Whale couldn't pay them, and there was lawsuits flying back and forth. So as you, as you well know, um, musical acts quite often the— Act was signed exclusively to the record company, but the individuals as, were as well. So because of that, when after the Turtles, Howard and Mark, when Frank Zappa asked them to join the Mothers of Invention, which they did, um, legally, they couldn't use their names. Uh -huh. So they w called themselves the Fluorescent Leech and Eddie, which were the nicknames given to their two roadies during the Turtles. Wow. And in fact, I think they're credited that the first kind of album that they contributed to, you know, really before they were with the, Mon uh, the, the Mothers was Hot Rats, Frank Zappa's Hot Rats, which was reissued, I think, uh, 
this year, and I think they, I think they're credited that way on that album. But it, so so fluorescent leech became shortened to flow F L O, and so they became flow and Eddie. It's just as a name for the new act. That's wonderful. One of the things that I like also about your book, My British Invasion, is that you talk about the business aspect of uh, of the groups. Because believe me, Firesign Theater, we had our share of legal problems and lawyerly things. And, uh, and it's fascinating to see how that dynamic often led to a breakup of the group or antagonism within the group. Yeah. Okay? Because ownership, same thing happened to the Beatles. You know, it's interesting. When you're a, a, a fan, you know, you like the music and, you know, a little bit that you're exposed to the to the artist. But but you, your kind of notion is that they're all brothers. Everybody in the yeah. group is br- brother. They love each other. Yeah. You see a hard day's night. The Beatles are on. They're having fun together. Yep. You don't really know about... Well, the, you know, this guy's getting all the girls, or I like this girl <laughs> and this guy got him. I mean, by the way, you know, we're talking about British invasion, but things like um, the animosity between Johnny Ramone and Joey Ramone because mm-hmm. Johnny's, well, um, Joey's girlfriend at a certain point decided she liked Johnny better and later married him. But I think there was like maybe two or three years while they were touring stuff, they didn't talk to each other. Oh my but that, God. you know, but that's what I'm saying. You know, when you're, you don't know that stuff or when Brian Jones leaves the Rolling Stones and you think, how could that be? Yeah, you have yeah. like, you didn't know that he was like, you know, the drugs, he couldn't like play on the records anymore. He, the, the Stones were prevented from coming to America because of, uh, the drug bust. That's you know, right. That, so, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you don't know those things. That's right. So, you know, when you're a teenager, early 20s, you know, you start to make records, you don't really know about things like the songwriters get money or if there's hits, the songwriters get so much yeah. more money. Yeah. I think um, I think that was some resentment towards Gene Clark, the lead singer or, or of the original birds who left after a few albums i think because he was the main songwriter at that point and he was making so much more money than the other guys so i think that came into play that's as one example but you know again the other thing is when you think about aside from how you feel about one another the great music that you make together and you think that that's not enough to sustain you know at least a professional business relationship or Mm -hmm. cordial business relationship rather than dissipating. In your book, you write about what seemed like a complicated relationship that you had with Ray Davies of the Kinks. So in the, by the way, uh, when you read the name, people refer to the last name as Davies, Ray Davies, but it's actually pronounced, he pronounces it Davis. Um, But um, there were Six sisters, I believe, and Ray, and then uh, th- you know, three years later, then Dave is born, and I think there's a lot of that sibling rivalry and resentment where, you know, Ray was getting all the attention from the family and the sisters, and then the cute baby comes along. So I think that's really the root of it. I mean, that's not the sole reason, but uh, when people think about a lot of these other uh, classic rock and roll groups having reunions and getting together for tours and stuff. Curiously, the Kinks haven't. And I think, you know, Ray has made so much money as a songwriter and Dave hasn't. I think that, you know, Ray isn't really that motivated. Unfortunately, you know, a reunion hasn't happened yet. We we had an interview with uh, one of the founding members of of Devo, Jerry Casale, and of course his brother, Yes, and, and he told similar stories. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's endemic. Right. To the, Again, by the way, the world yeah, of rock and roll. The the Rhino store was really important to the early days of Devo because we they did their first I think two singles, first single, first two singles, privately pressed, and at the Rhino store we sold more than anybody. Wow. We were like a big Devo. We pushed Devo a lot. But again, you think these guys, you know, coming out from Akron, Ohio, and you know, they're so strange yeah, it was and like goofy, an art project, and then all know? of a sudden they become successful, yeah. and you think, you know, how could they not all hold it together and be appreciative? And But again, another hey, example. Hey, listen, the same thing happened with Firesign Theater. We had periods where we were silent partners, 
to one another. Right. Somebody would get under somebody else's skin, and and we we and but we weathered it because whenever we decided to get back together again, we had so much fun, and we're so full of ideas that it 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 allowed us to continue on. Right. So anyway, as it relates to you know those stories. Uh, in both books, you know, where I think something is interesting or relevant, I talk about, you know, the business side, just to kind of give some perspective or context to what happened. And one of the things you wrote in the book also was you were inspired to, to start the record company, the Rhino Records, because of Apple Music and the Beatles. Yeah, so there were uh, kind of three influences. One was Jack Holzman's Electra yes. Records. Jack Holzman, yes, I remember And that. um the thing about the Beatles is a couple things is, um, first of all, the quality, the quality of those artists, obviously not just the Beatles, but um, Bad Finger and Mary Hopkin in the first James Taylor album and a few other artists. But also um, what really struck me is they had ads originally uh, that basically was like, send us your tapes. <laughs> I mean, also, but, you know, other things as well, send us your creative ideas. And it was really unworkable and a little a little bit too idealistic, but I just love the concept that somebody could come in off the street, and if you liked it, you could put the record out, and that actually happened to us. So it was with that kind of idealistic spirit and the quality uh, that was the inspiration from Apple Records. And what was the inspiration for the Rhino name and the logo? Well, the Rhino name uh, uh, came from the record store, uh, which opened in October 1973. I remember it well. And um, uh, Richard Foose, of course, started the store, and right. then uh, I went to work for him, and later on we started the label as partners. And um, But, you know, we came up with all of these cosmic reasons for Rhino Records, and <laughs> but really it was just the alliteration. Rhino Records. Yeah. Sure. So our first year, which is really the first year we put out Albums, which reflected more of a serious uh, intent, I would say. So that was 1978. Um, I look upon that the first year of the label, even though we put out some singles over the previous two or three years. So 1978, on our small level, um, we actually got a little bit of airplay here and there, like the Temple City Kazoo Orchestra. So, oh, for, yeah, insta so for instance, so for instance, K Rock. For, you know, locally played it, and you know, a few other places. So we, we had a surprisingly good year, good enough so that at the end of the year, Richard sold the store, and then we went as partners into the label in a different location. But the next year, 1979, just in that one year, radio had tightened up. It was like mm. they were playing certain some of these goofy records we put out the previous year, and then they, and in fact. Um, we would have lost money that year. I think we came close to breaking even, primarily because of two successful releases, which was, um, we were talking about Devo earlier. They were so big in L.A., we put out a record of, it was a contest through K-Rock where people would send in tapes. So it was Devo Tees. And then, um, of course, uh, uh, Nick Danger, the Nick Danger EP we put out That's from right. you know the radio show, um, which not in one year, but all over like maybe two three years, I think sold like over twenty thousand copies. But it was they're all in my garage right now. No, I don't think so. But no, basically what I'm saying is like we were, I couldn't understand it. Like we were putting more money into production and making yeah. better records. They weren't getting played. They weren't selling that well. It was like so dismal. And then towards the end of the year, those records kind of really pulled us out and made us basically, you know, okay for the year. In my research uh, about our relationship, uh, it seems to me that the first record that we collaborated on was Fighting Clowns. Yes, yes. Yeah, that was in 1980. Right. In 82, it was Lawyer's Hospital. Right. In 82, it was also Shakespeare's Lost Comedy. Right. Which, you know, is one of my very favorite records, and you helped us produce that and get it out there. Then, in 1983, The Three Faces of Al, which was really one of the first CD comedy recordings nominated for a Grammy. Well, actually, it was the first spoken word CD. Was it? Yeah. To go back in time here for a moment, we're talking about 30 or 40 years ago and just how different technology was in terms of music listening. Yeah. 
You know, then it was all about home high-fidelity systems and record players, then tape players, then CD players. Personal listening devices were, at that time, large portable radios that ran on half a dozen D-cell batteries and the occasional bulky headphones. And the other music listening medium was the car radio. So for me, kind of our generation, when you were young, you know, you were saving money. First, you wanted to own your own car, especially in Southern California. Then secondly, you wanted a really good sound system with big speakers. Yeah. And the, and the idea was, you know, in some small way, maybe to approximate if you went to a concert yeah. and you hear like big sound systems, you know, in a small way, you'd kind of want to experience that at home. With woofers and tweeters. Right. And one of the things in um, subsequent generations, and I have uh, two kids who are in their 20s and it's typical of them and stuff. But when you think about people listen, younger people, but people in general listening on um you know, laptop computers or maybe earbuds or whatever it is. Um, it, you know, when we talk about the concept, of, well, the name, the group Devo, which was short for de-evolution. Right. And when you think about that concept and you think about listening to music, which are, you know, sound waves and richness of, you know, harmonics, and you think about you know, in the digital age and in the how people listen to it, you know, that's really devolved. I mean, people just, uh, younger people, for the most part, are just not experiencing it, um, you know, with uh, the sound, the enjoyment that I think that they could. I heard that, that vinyl records actually outsold CDs last year because of the nostalgic value and the sound quality. Yeah, but I mean, ultimately, because CDs have been falling so much. It's, well, you're right. They're, that's right. I mean, it's nice that vinyl has reestablished itself, uh, at least uh, on a small level, and keeps selling more and more every year. But ultimately, it's still small. And, you know, I realize the convenience and um, of anything you want to hear, whether you own it or whether you, uh, you know, call it up on Spotify or uh, YouTube or whatever it is, but it's still, you know, just really doesn't have the... Um, substantial sonic quality of listening, you know, like like we, we used to listen to it in the old days. All right. So uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your relationship with Richard. Uh, Richard Foose, of course, started the store. And then yep. here's the here's story how I met Richard. And again, it ties into all the stuff we're talking about. Um, there was a very hip record store on Hollywood Boulevard called Record Paradise or Lewin's Record Paradise. And they were important in the mid-60s because they got the British imports. So um, the British imports, like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones primarily, you know, they had different songs. They had, you know, maybe because of different uh, um, copyright payment structures, there would be more songs on the English albums. And, of course, they cost a lot more, but they were important. And then, you know, towards the end of the 60s, the same albums that... Uh, uh, were produced in uh, England were the same as in the U.S. You know, they were uh, homogenized and solidified at that point. It was the same stuff. So they were kind of sliding as far as their uh, uh, their mission. But nonetheless, um, I, was, uh, I was there and they had bootlegs. And another customer, I was looking at bootlegs, and I said, hey, there's this guy who has a record concession in Santa Monica at an electronics store, Apollo Electronics, you know, he's cheaper. You should go there. So I went to Apollo Electronics, which was located in the location where after the outdoor mall was redone where the um, the Broadway Deli, you remember on the corner there for many years it was there. So that's where Apollo Electronics used to be. And huh. so Richard had a corner of the store. And um, so aside from the fact that he was cheaper, I could also trade in my my records there, yeah. which meant that, you know, I wasn't like cash out of pocket for buying. And I mean, it was, you know, bootlegs, but, but, but he also had like used records. It wasn't like I only bought bootlegs. I mean, I bought, you know, cutouts or used records as well. But so from going there, I just really liked him. His vibe, he was mellow. You know, there were like no other customers. So we would chat. So I got to know him. And then um, when he was about to open up the record store, I'd saved my promo copies because I felt like I liked him so much. I thought, you know, I really want him to have a good selection when he opens the store. So I was going to England. Uh, so this was in like the 
September, October 73. Uh-huh. He didn't have a name for the store yet. Uh-huh. And I went over to his house with, you know, like, I don't know if it was like a couple hundred records or whatever I yeah, gave him yeah. for that. And then obviously when I came back, it was Rhino Records. Um, but originally it was just I really, you know, liked them for various reasons. And then ultimately, as I mentioned before, um, um, getting a job, you know, clerking, later becoming manager, and then, you know, forming the label in the back room. That's great. I mean, that's the, that's the way to really form a friendship, you know, starting, starting sweeping the floors. <laughs> I, slept, I swept the floors. Yeah, and then, you, you, you know, my uncle, who was in the motion picture business, Clarence Urist, he was a production manager, he once told me, he said, uh, every great director started just handling cables and working on the lighting and everything. And he said, because of that, if you say to your director of photography, I want a, a shot where there's, a, you know, the light coming from over here and pan over and we'll catch you and we'll do a call. Oh, no, 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 sir, I can't do that because of the thing. He said, of course you can do it. You put a French cutter there and the brood over here. And, that, <laughs> and, and, and he knew his business from the inside out. Yeah, two important aspects. Um, one is because we just started the label once we moved out of the, the store, just the two of us and one guy who shipped, one shipping records. So we divided up all of the um, jobs that ordinarily a record company would have. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, he did uh, radio promotion and wasn't very good at it. And then I did radio promotion. I wasn't, you know, that good at it. But nonetheless, you know, you call up, you know, the program directors, you send, you know, all that, the colleges. Um, I had my background. I knew about publicity from having been a writer. Richard handled um, manufacturing and distribution. I mean, you know, we kind of yeah, split things yeah. up. So if, so, so if somebody had come up through the ranks of a formal record company, they might have just known one job, just exactly. in the area, but because we had to learn it all. So that was really helpful. And um, the other thing is because we didn't work full-time in any, uh, you know, record label, we didn't um, acquire the bad habits. So you definitely see excesses because in the late 70s, initially, uh, again, spurred on by Fleetwood Mac primarily, but you had Michael Jackson. You had these albums which were selling multiple millions, and there was so much money around, then um, the labels became inefficient and spendthrift to the point where I think it was maybe about 81 or 82, they had to really tighten up and they fired people. So that, But anyway, I'm just saying that yeah. we um, didn't have any of those, we never got any of those bad habits because we weren't exposed to it. Yeah, like Robin Williams said, cocaine is God's way of telling you you're making too much money. Yes, yes. <laughs> I remember that combination. The Dom Perignon, You'd sprinkle the cocaine on top, which would make the bubbles, and then stir it with a tie stick to take out the bubbles, because that's the part that makes you drunk, and and drink it all down. (laughs) Wow, I learned something. (laughs) You know, a lot of times people, like, they start a company, and they have to get, like, brand new furniture, and they're really keen on, like, making a big impression. And we were kind of the opposite. And it was like, uh, you know, if there was, like, a... uh, uh, a sofa, you know, on the side of the street, you know, Richard would get the truck and, you know, <laughs> it was not literally, but, you know, as an example. We, we tried to put the most money back into the product and also at a certain point when we when we had two or three years later being able to license from some of the majors uh, so to reissue. So that was part of it. But the other thing is back in the store um, prior to all of this, you know, we would interact with our customers. We would see what people were buying. Um, we would note things like um, Gene Vincent. There was a box set that came out of Germany or something that was like really impressive. Nobody was doing box sets in the U.S. So uh, uh, two or three years into our label, we put out a Richie Valens box set, which was the first box set anybody put out in the wow. U.S. So that's what I'm saying is you would kind of learn from this. But anyway, we... Ultimately, what really we we love novelty records, which you know, growing up with you know Alan Sherman and Purple People Eater and Stan Freeberg, and ultimately you know more sophisticated Firesign Theater. Mm-hmm. So we love novelty records, which is always part of top forty, and we could record it cheaply, like the Temple City Kazoo Orchestra. But by the time, you know, we were rolling in that, 
radio really wouldn't play it. So it's kind of like, well, if, you, if it's not exposed, if people don't hear it, they can't buy it. So I was also a champion of local bands, like who are some of the better bands, and and we put out some records. But then, like, I was really surprised that local stations, more specifically K Rock, wouldn't play it. So again, if like the New Cats or the Pop or the Naughty Sweeties, you know, weren't getting played, then you can't sell it. So that was a big disappointment. So ultimately. The only thing that really worked for us was reissuing. You know, the first best stuff we put out was Alan Sherman. Uh-huh. And then, you know, there was the first um, best stuff of a rock act was Love. And as I mentioned before, because the record labels were focused on selling millions of albums of certain artists, you know, if they could reissue something and sell five or 10,000 copies, they weren't interested. So it wasn't so much like we saw a niche, let's go after it commercially, we can make a lot of money. It was more like we were fans of these artists. There should be a best of the Spencer Davis group. It's not out. There should be a best of the Turtles. It's not out. So it was more motivated from that. And the fact that there were other people who felt the same way about this great music as we did, and that kind of ultimately proved to be the winning formula, you know, as we... Um, did more of it. We got better at what we did, marketing, production, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, the quad. But it was always one difference is the majors, when they would put these out, invariably would be how could we squeeze money out of these old hits? Right. And they, you know, they really wouldn't put much into it. For us, it was the opposite. It was, uh, but, you know, it's like in life you get inspired by a lot of things. So I'll give you like one kind of, kind of oblique reference. When haagen first came out, it was the first premium ice cream. You know, a higher per- percentage of butter fat. You know, it costs more. You didn't mind paying more for it. So it was kind of like, okay, it wasn't like literally the, the connecting the dots of let's be like the haagen of reissues, but it was always let's put more money into these. Let's have the quality reflect how we felt as record fans. This music was important to us growing up. So let's put that importance into the pro- to the projects, what we were doing. And didn't you also work with a Weird Al at one point? Well, um, not really, but the interesting thing is Dr. Domeno had Weird Al call me. Oh. So he, uh, he came in, I think it was maybe around um, Thanksgiving break from uh, Cal Poly, uh, San Luis Obispo. And so what he'd done um, in the... Um, the bathroom. I, li- I listened to you know the, your podcast. You know where he talks about it. Um, my Bologna, which of course you know satirizing my Sharona big hits. So this right. is in 1979. So uh, in meeting with him, you know obviously he was totally out of his element. But in that context of that meeting, off the top of my head, I came up with a great idea. And the idea was because we were like doing you know picture discs yeah. because of you know what can we sell? What's our niche? that others weren't doing or that we feel that we could sell of. So I said, why don't we do the single? Let's do it like a Bologna picture disc and let's package it so it looks like, you know, pa- like lunch meat. Right. And I thought, great idea off the top of my head. Of course, I never heard from him again. Oh, no, but, you know, idea. he made the deal with Capitol Records, who, you know, they didn't really care about it. I think they were just doing it to, you know, appease the Knack, who are also on Capitol. So, ah, the Knack. Um, but anyway, that's so, yeah, it came out on Capitol. I, I think it you know, sold very little. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, and we'll be right back with Rhino Records' Harold Bronson and his magical history tour after this important, imported message. Whew. I'm Bob Dylan, president of the brokerage house, Dylan Reed, which I own with my buddy, Lou Reed. This week, we got a tip for everybody with money in the market. The Federal Reserve has lowered the prime rate again, and we believe this is just the beginning. Come businessmen and farmers throughout the land. Call up your stockbrokers just as quick as you can. Your CDs and your IRAs are beyond your command. The Fed is a gradual easing. Get your cash in along bonds for the twin demand. For the interest rate, they are a changing.
You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. Subscribe to our podcast right now by clicking the subscribe button on your podcast player. Back to Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, Hollywood producer and co-founder of Rhino Records, Harold Bronson. We're back with Harold Bronson, co-founder of Rhino Records and producer extraordinaire. A special friend who I've known for decades, uh, who worked with us as a producer and collaborator on three of our most fun albums, Gimme Immortality, Gimme Death, Boom, Dot, Bust, and The Bride of Fireside, two of which were nominated for Grammys. And Harold, with Rhino Records, uh, has a long, long history. You're a very well-rounded person, and I think that that uh, is unique because today people tend to be, again, because of the Internet and the media and everything, they, begin, they get narrowcast. They, they're, they're more focused on one goal, if you will, and they tend to lose sight of, of its effect on the entire culture and the world. So um, I'm going to flip into this. So my favorite subject in school um, was history. When I went into college, I was not a history major because what are you going to do with that? I didn't want to teach. Right. But in you know flipping it back, you know in Rhino, I was dealing with the history of, you know, music and you know record companies and stuff. So that's kind of interesting that arc. But you know, there's a lot of things that are kind of not that important or not well known. But I'm going to give you one example that I don't know if it was like a few years ago. Just one example where I discovered this. Um, I was reading a book about. Um, World War One, and um, you know, of course the United States entered the war, you know, later. But um, a lot of potential recruits were rejected because their teeth were so poor. And you read about this, and you, most people. So we're I'm dealing, you know, time frame a little over a hundred years ago. You know, most people did they didn't brush their teeth. You know, you don't really think about things like that. You don't really think about, you know, we brush our teeth. We don't really think about it. It's part of everything we do. And you don't really think about, you know, not only did, you know, most people not care for their teeth, but so many, you know, a significant amount were rejected from, um, you know, being called up in the armed services. So, again, it's, you know, it's not a a secret, but it's like a nice little kind of like, fact that, you know, I'd never read about that before. So there's lots of those things out there. It's much better than shooting yourself in the foot. Oh, yes. So what are you doing now, Harold? So um, my contract and Richard's contract were through the end of 2001 at Rhino. And what was interesting is that because of illegal downloading, um, sales and profits in the industry were, you know, declining a couple years at that point. Interestingly enough, ours were still increasing. So um, at that point, you know, we were wholly owned by the Warner Music Group. From my point of view, it seems to me that the head of the Warner Music Group could have been thinking about, well, look, I have all these other problematical areas. Let me focus on that. These guys at Rhino are doing a good job. Let me just you know, renew, you know, even like for a year or something. But he wanted to have his own guy in there. So um, so I left um, towards the end of 2001. Richard hung on for a few more months. I think he left in March 2002. So at that point, um, uh, we were talking about the Turtles earlier. Um, I did a low-budget movie that Howard Kalin wrote, the lead singer of the Turtles, called My Dinner with Jimmy, which was the Turtles went to England for the first time, these kind of naive kids. And, you know, they got swirling into the world of English rock and roll, their heroes. Oh, that's funny. You know, the Beatles and, you know, Brian Jones taking, you know, with with a 8-millimeter camera, taking, you know, movies of them at the Speakeasy Club. And, and Howard had dinner with Jimi Hendrix at a time when people in America didn't know who he was because he hadn't had a hit here. He had, I think, one or two hits in England at that point. Um, so, um, so I wanted to capture the time and for the low budget, the movie turned out really well. But in trying, I always thought that the better movie you make, the better chance you had to sell it rather than realizing, well, there's no known stars in here. So therefore, you know, no matter 
how, how great, great it is. So yeah. We had real difficulty selling it. So it's available on um, a DVD and I think like on a streaming service. So what I'm saying is after Rhino for a few years, even though Richard and I, you know, funded the film, you know, I was a responsible person and I would have to like, whether it's the post-production or trying to sell it or, you know, meetings, whatever it is, you know, part of me was thinking, you know, I'm not going to make any money out of, the, out of this, but it's my responsibility to oversee it. So there was that and um, a couple, I, I, I really wanted to do rock and roll movies, but that didn't happen. Mm. But um but that and a couple other projects for a few years. And that, so it took me a few years before I finally was able to get down to focus on um, the Rhino story. And you were executive producer of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas about wild man Hunter Thompson portrayed by Johnny Depp. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that was a Rhino film. So originally that was um, serialized in two issues of Rolling Stone and was so popular um, that it came out as a hardcover and later on as a paperback. And it was among my favorite books just because it, part of it was so funny. Yeah. And um, various people had tried to make make that, including in the 70s. Um, did you know the, the guys in the uh, Conception Corporation? Oh, absolutely. Sure. Okay, Howard Cohen. How and Howard, yep. Howard Cohen? Yep. Okay, so at one point, I think he might have written the first script. Oh, Screenplay so. way back when. Um but nobody had been able to make the movie. But at one point, I think, uh, you know, Belushi and Aykroyd were either attached or maybe <laughs> they were considered for it. And then another time it was, uh, I think, Jack Nicholson. Anyway, nobody would be able to make it. And it was uh, still available. And uh, met with Hunter. Hunter Thompson, ladies and gentlemen. I had a good relationship with him. I liked him. Um, uh, I think, you know, part of the things about him is... Um, I don't think he understood why he was still alive. You know, <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, like, yeah, I've taken all these drugs, I've mm -hmm. abused myself, I've this and this and that, and, you know, what do I do now? You know, what do I do with my life now? And kind of, again, maybe a, a, a dot leading to that, but, um, you know, obviously a number of years um, he did commit suicide. Part of the contributing factor was uh, he was suffering from back pain, I don't know if, oh, if he was yeah. doing that at the time. but um, So in the Rhino Records story, I have a whole chapter on Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and it's really the only good chapter that gives you an overview from like the original project and why he wrote, the, wrote it and what he was trying to do all the way through people trying to make the movie to uh, us trying to make it. And um, it's, uh, yeah, so that was in 1998, you spent time with Hunter Thompson, so you must have some stories. Yes. Okay, so meeting him for the first time, um, he was coming into town from um, Woody Creek, which is you know, outside of Aspen, and um, we put him up at the Westwood Marquee, which is now the W. We had dinner at the hotel in a reservation, and even though he was you know, upstairs, he was still, I think, like 45 minutes late. Um, <laughs> We order drinks and stuff, and he like uh, you know he's flamboyant, and I'm sitting across from him, and I think there's maybe about eight of us, and he does something which I thought was like you know really uh, funny. So you know when they bring the bread, there's the uh, the little butter dish. Yeah. I'm sitting across from him, what looks it's so funny like he sweeps his his, uh, his uh, pinky finger in and he sweeps it up to his nose like he's snorting cocaine, and I'm thinking to myself, ha ha ha. A few seconds later, it's like, wait a minute, you know, that that wasn't the butter dish. That really was his like small little container of cocaine in a public restaurant in the dining room. It made it kind of tense to almost like, what's he gonna do next? Next, yeah. Um, so that was his charm, was, you know. It really was a fear and loathing experience for us dealing with, you know, the angry Terry Gilliam doing with this investor on. This previous movie, we did a parody of Pulp Fiction called Plump Fiction, who thought he had the right, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, we were sued and we were, I mean, it was like really a miserable experience, like one of the worst experiences of my life. But what was interesting about it, nothing emanating from Hunter. Wow. Although I must say, when he left town, um, there was a little incident. Um, he and this woman who used to be his paramour, um, 
they'd had uh, dinner at a fancy restaurant on La Cienega Boulevard. Fortunately, you know, they were too inebriated to drive the rent-a-car that I paid, for, you know, the rent-a-car. Yeah, right. Uh, I think it was a Mercedes or something. I can't remember exactly, but <laughs> they were inebriated to drive it to the hotel. You know, great. That's, you know, some wisdom right there. The next day, nobody could find the car. <laughs> you know, so I was thinking to myself, yeah, typically, um, yeah, typically Hunter, you know, would lose the car. <laughs> and Terry Gilliam of Monty Python fame, he did all the great animations, uh, later became a film director, and he was brought in to direct Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, not originally, but a certain, what happened, you know, this was hard for us to sell this movie. What happened was, um, so 12 Monkeys, which was Bruce Willis, right. mm-hmm. Terry directed, uh, it made money for Universal. So Universal was interested in another Terry Gilliam movie. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's lots of stories where, you know, at a certain point, you know, there was like after a couple of script revisions, one of the problems was, you know, it was like it was still the budget was too high. So then he did mm-hmm. like a, maybe it was like he and his writing partner. I think maybe it was like a third script uh, and it was approved. And I think I was talking to Terry and like, how are you going to do that? He says, I only did this to you know get it approved so we could like he wasn't like serious about adhering to At you know, budget. So I think it probably came in. um 15% over budget or something. I mean, Universal was really pissed off, but, you know, what could they do? Yeah. Um, but so I think box office, it did, I think, maybe around 12 and a half, 13 million. So, you know, it, uh, you know, according to their, you know, records and how they account, it's, you know, very much unrecouped, shall we say. Huh. So have you pursued uh, film production? Is that what you're most interested in now? Well, what I wanted to do was mostly rock and roll movies because I felt that I understood it better than anybody else and could do it better than anybody else. But there was a um, a run where, like, every rock and roll movie would lose money and the studios wouldn't say, they wouldn't, like, go, oh, you know, this didn't do well because it wasn't a good movie. I'd say the subject matter wasn't. Yeah, so even though I wanted to do a Ramones movie, I wanted to do, I wanted to do a movie about the Knack called My Sharona... Uh, the true story because you know that had never come out before and um, I had a relationship with Doug Figer who co-wrote the song and was the singer and I never even pitched that even though I worked with him on um, the story because the you know climate wasn't good for pitching anything so again that's a chapter in the uh, uh, the Rhino record story. You also worked with John Lydon to make a film about his band the Sex Pistols. Yes uh, trying to do a uh, a movie about the Sex Pistols based on his book and having some meetings with him and, you know, an overview of that. And, uh, you know, we wanted to do it. And uh, I think he got, I don't quite know why, for cold cold feet, but, but he's never, uh, there's never been a Sex Pistols, you know, movie uh, like that that told the story. Is that the project you wanted to call Rotten? Yeah, that's the name of the book. Yeah, right. Yeah. But you, you thought that might not be good for the reviews. Right. Well, yeah, that was like, yeah, the, well, I mean, easy target, right? Yeah, but, but no, but my point was I thought that, you know, that that would be something that would really amuse Johnny. Sure. That if he if Johnny the movie Rotten. was titled Rotten and if people like lambasted the movie, I would see him getting some like perverse pleasure out of that. <laughs> Contrary to what people who remember may think, as outrageous as they were, the Sex Pistols was not a physically violent band, at least at first. Well, yeah, for the most part, except here's what happened. A lovely story, but Malcolm McLaren managed these other guys, and John Lydon, later to be known more as John Rotten, Johnny Rotten. So he, they were looking for a singer. They couldn't find a suitable singer. So he auditioned in front of, singing along to Alice Cooper, um, I'm 18 in like the jukebox played and you know that's the guy so basically when he joined the group I think he was a little bit younger than him than the others but he thought he's felt a little bit uncomfortable like the other three had been together and playing for a while so even though the bass player Glenn Matlock was pretty good the fact that he was a Beatles fan was the pretext for Johnny to sort of fire him and get his friend Sid Vicious in, even though Sid, you know, had never played bass before. So Sid was the violent guy. He actually got into some altercations, yeah. Yeah, but you're right, aside from him, um, you know, they, I'm under the impression that they, you know, weren't violent at all. 
What's your take on today's music business? Is it even recognizable to you? No, I mean, to me, it's really not the music business anymore. We talked about some of that earlier. And um, when I left Rhino, um, I would have preferred to have stayed on. Uh, but nonetheless, given the confines of what we were all about and being that I couldn't really branch much more into Rhino films because people weren't really responding to our, our ideas. I mean, there were a number of other mu movies I wanted to do. So, yeah, it really wasn't a business that I really related to. And, you know, I didn't mind stepping away from Rhino and, uh, uh, you know, going on to, you know, other pursuits, even if, you know, personal. Do you have another book uh, that you're working on? Well, speaking of which, in a memoir form, it's like a diary. It's a diary, really. But, you know, most diaries, you know, focus on oneself and one's thoughts. And, um, and there's a little bit of that, but mostly it focuses on the artist. What was it like dealing with these artists? You know, what did they have to say about the creative process? Uh, you know, what was it like interacting with them? You know, a little bit, just a little bit of the business side, but it's mostly, um, you know, the Inter artist. Interpersonal. Yeah, stuff, right? yeah. How can people get your books? Uh, well, the other two books should be generally available. I mean, of course, Amazon or, you know, Barnes & Noble online. Um, you know, bookstores can order them. Cool. Well, Harold, th this was really a trip through time. Yes, enjoyed it. It was a trip through time. <laughs> and it's so good to see you again. Thank you, Harold, for joining us. Well, thank you. Happy to be here and seeing you guys as well. So this is Phil and Ted, and we want to remind you, please subscribe. We've got a bunch of wonderful guests coming up. Whatever platform you are standing on right now, just step on that subscribe button. And please share our show with all your friends, and I hope you like it. Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. So long. Forward. Into the past. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and special guest Harold Bronson. Dylan Reed was written and performed by Patrick Weathers. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm A. Ernest Guy. Join us for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for boomers. Okay?